0: Hi, you're listening to a Sydney Writers' Festival podcast. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded live as part of the 2022 festival. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. My name is Sisonke Simang, and I will be your moderator this evening-ish. Um, and I'm incredibly pleased to be in conversation with Yasmin abdel Magdid. Uh, to talk about her book, Talking About a Revolution. I want to begin by acknowledging that we are on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, um, and I want to recognize that that has a real and particular meaning when we meet to talk about stories, because this is, of course, a place that is rich with stories. Whether or not we want to hear those stories, I think, depends on us And so I think it places an obligation on us when we remember where we are and when we acknowledge where we are. It places an obligation for us to seek out the stories of the people who have kept and held this country without ceding sovereignty for so long. So thank you everyone. Is Yasmin there? Or it's me I'm looking at. (laughs) There she is!
1: Hey everybody. How are you? I'm good. It's early here in London.
0: Yes, you're bringing us sunshine sunshine and sunlight.
1: Nobody has ever said that about London. Nobody has said London is bringing the sunlight. That's a very good point.
0: (laughs) It's dark here. It's dark here. So I want to begin um, by introducing you, although you need no introduction, but I'll, I'll do it nonetheless for the the sake of protocol. Yasmin Abdel Magid is a Sudanese Australian writer. She's a recovering mechanical engineer, and I'm not sure that you ever get to recover from that, and an award-winning social advocate who writes and speaks on politics, society, culture and technology. She is the writer of many books, but we're here to talk today about Talking About Revolution, which is a gorgeous title, um, an inspiring essay collection, and I urge everyone, if you haven't bought it, to buy it, and if you have bought it, to buy another couple of copies for friends. (laughs) Welcome.
1: Please, please do.
0: (laughs) So I, um, this book of essays is divided into two sections. The first section is about um, the public and the private self, and then the section, The second section looks at society and culture. And I thought we might structure our conversation to to swing between the two, if that's okay with you. Um, And so, in some ways, it's a book that is a series of essays that that chart your intellectual growth. And part of that intellectual growth that it charts is a loss of innocence. Um, And in many ways, uh, it's a book that is about learning and growing through some painful experiences, but also is such a fun and not bitter book. And so I want to talk about um, how, how you do that. And I thought the best way to get into that is to ask you to read a little excerpt. Um, so if you can read from the introduction, because I just love the way you frame it. And if you start on the, um, the second paragraph of the introduction. And if you will it go... It has never? It has never. And if you stop at care and justice on the, the first, at the end of the first paragraph. You see it? Yeah? All right.
1: It has never felt more prescient to talk about revolution, whether ideological or, eman- or emancipatory, Industrial, technological, or simply within us, revolution, resistance, transformation, and change are the currents charging every aspect of 21st century life. This moment, then, is a period of transition, a liminal space offering incredible opportunity, but there are no guarantees for how things will turn out. So the moment is now. There is no time to waste. We must Act. But wait, action alone is not enough. We must also think deeply, consider carefully, with intention and nuance the world we live in. Diagnose the challenges, ensuring our assumptions are accurate and our energies are strategically targeted. Commit to creating in language and indeed a collectively liberated future. We must act Yes, but with intention, with grace, care, and justice.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. So I'm particularly drawn to this notion of thinking and acting with care and grace and justice. Do you want to say a little bit more about how those words, which are gentle and slow, how they um, interact with the notion of revolution, which is fiery and Mm. angry and not gentle? Or is it?
1: Thank you so much for the question. Yeah, I think this is something I've spent a lot of time over the last, you know, almost five years now thinking and thinking about, you know, how do I translate my personal experiences into something larger than myself and what lessons do I take from a life that has been very varied um, and where I've had the opportunity to, you know, be lifted to great heights but also um, sort of sent to to dark lows. And I think for me what I took out of it was was not that um, things didn't need to change or that... um, or or that I wanted, you know, just fire and brimstone, but I needed to find a way through it. And for me, you know, when I started, um, when I started processing, and then when I started looking towards the sources of hope and the sources of, um, critique and morality. So for me, it was you know it was going back to my faith and the lessons taught throughout Islam over the centuries. It was going back to you know black feminists like the Audre Lorde's and the bell hooks and the Angela Davises and so on, and thinking you know what are the threads here? What do they keep coming back to? How do they you know process what is going on? And in almost every place that i looked in almost every you know source that i turned to that was interested in change that was genuinely different not just how do we become the new oppressors because i think that's that's an easier thing to do it's you know you you collect power and you dominate and that's something that has been done you know for centuries for millennia but that hasn't worked out for us so we needed something new and you know, it, the title of, of one of Bell Hook's books that many of you I'm sure have read is All About Love and this idea that actually there is something revolutionary in putting aside the, you know, the domination and the power over and these very sort of charged um, oppressive structures and thinking, well, what is another way? What is an alternative? Because I knew personally that if I did what had been done to me, to others, that wouldn't actually make me happy in the long term. That isn't actually the world. It doesn't, it doesn't bring peace to my soul. You know, That isn't where I feel most at rest. That is a charged kind of energy. Whereas if I had found a way to think about change by caring, and caring doesn't necessarily mean you know, being walked all over. Mm-hmm. Justice does not necessarily, grace does not necessarily mean, you know, a, a version of these words that... Um that is only submissive and that has no kind of spine or anything like that. I think actually it is incredibly hard to live in the world and to operate with grace and with care and with justice. I think they are the hardest things. Mm. Um, it is, I, I write about these things in these essays because it is what I'm stretching towards. It is what I, you know, the best version of me wants to achieve. Mm. Um, And so it is about thinking genuinely. Revolution is not only about the fire and the brimstone. Sure, there is a place for that, but I actually think what is truly radical, what is truly revolutionary is to completely reimagine the way that we live in this world, the way that we structure this world, the way that we think about ourselves, you know, our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with each other and and find a way, chart a way towards um, a society that operates with grace and care and justice.
0: Mm, beautiful, thank you. So, one of the things that you do towards this end, in these essays, is you help us to think through and unpack some very big concepts—the the kinds of words that we hear are kind of flung around and that people don't dig into. So, one of the one of the early essays is um, is you know words words have a meaning, right? That we use words for a reason. Um, but I wanted to talk about some of these big concepts you run through, right? You talk about neoliberalism, and you talk about brownwashing, and you talk about feminism, of course. Um, and I love the essay where you, say, where you talk about how life was easier before you were woke, right? That <laughs> It's like so wonderful to not be woke, right? To just like... Be able to breeze through. Oh my god. <laughs> the innocence, right? The innocence.
1: It really was bliss. It yeah, was great. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, um, And questions about, you know, systemic change. So these are big concepts. And so because the, the one that threads through everything and in many ways calls upon us to care the most and to, and to fight uh, for justice the most, and there are many, but the one that calls us to me in a way that is hardest to see is this whole concept of neoliberalism. So I'd love you to talk to us about what is neoliberalism and and, and what is the shape of what we can think about as um, as we seek to address it. And I say this fully mindful that we are living in the clutches and grips of it, at 6 p.m. on election day <laughs> on in election an era, day. era of neoliberal, <laughs> big neoliberal energy. Um, so <laughs> so talk, us, talk to us about neoliberalism.
1: Big neoliberal energy is definitely a phrase that- I can't believe can be, I just said We're gonna be using a lot. Yeah. <laughs> BLE. <laughs> Gosh, um, such an important question. And I think, you know, I remember about maybe like six years ago now, um, I was attending a conference or like a sort of event where, you know, a bunch of young people were talking about lots of issues that were really important. And I remember somebody who was of, you know, a older generation saying to me, you know, the interesting thing about this, you know, all these subjects that people have chosen is that nobody has put down, we need to tackle capitalism. And that has changed. I think that like we are now at a point in time. And also I think, you know, Gen Z, like the younger generation talks a lot about capitalism and, and, you know, neoliberalism. But as you say, I think part of the challenge is in really digging down and trying to understand what these terms actually mean so that, when we are trying to tackle them, we're not just kind of using them to signal certain things, like to signal we're on the right side of, you know, the tracks or whatever, um, or in the right group, but we actually understand. And for me, when I think of neoliberalism, I think of the impacts that it has had in the world. And one of the quotes that I reference in one of the essays is by this um, sort of older feminist named Gail Lewis, who talks about how the, Today, we live in a world, she, she sort of references that, you know, today, even like your young black activists will be um, awarded, you know, they'll be on a they'll be on a Forbes Up 30 Under 30 list, or they'll be, you know, even the black community, say here in the UK, um, will be giving awards to individuals for growing their business or for doing, you know, whatever it is, like individual achievements. And she was like, "This to me is a is the success of the Thatcherite and the Reaganite kind of era, which is that the individual success." is seen as the collective success. She was like that would never have happened in her era in the 70s and 80s where, you know, the only measure of success was have we been able to lift up the community. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is something I myself am not, you know, I'm not exempt from this critique. I think that we have we have absorbed the idea of individualism the atomization the the idea that like my success is therefore my community's success without actually thinking of what it is that i'm doing i might be exploiting my own community but if i have you know 10 book deals and making a lot of money that somehow presented a success for it actually isn't success for everyone unless i'm actively trying to raise everybody up unless perhaps you know the way that I've written this book, these books, are by collaborating with you know groups of people, and they're all going to get a published book deal after it. You know, it's a it's about this kind of we have absorbed this idea that our individual success and progress, quote unquote, financially, monetarily, economically, um, is somehow a collective liberation. And I think it's a really, you know, and there's obviously lots of other elements to what, you know, neoliberalism is and what it does. But this, for me, is at the core of it, is that it has... Eroded our ability to think genuinely collectively. It has eroded our ability to understand our work, our activism, our revolution, our movement as something that need that necessarily must be collective in order to be genuinely liberating. And you know, it, gosh, it turns up really in lots of ways. And it's something that I myself am trying to to figure out. Like, how do I, it, it, the very structures of things like our social medias, our social media, my social media is about me, Yasmin Abdel-Majid. It's not, you know, even if I'm doing, you know, if I'm working in a, in a connected organisation, necessarily the platform wants you to, to raise yourself up as an individual to present yourself as an individual brand to see your success as an individual rather than Mm. you know as part of a collective and the kinds of risks we run are say for example what have happened with what has happened with um you know the co-founders of the Black Lives Matter movement they've come under a lot of scrutiny recently for you know um being seen to have like purchased houses with the funding that came from the Black Lives Matter movement fundraising post Mm. the murder of George Floyd. Now, I don't know what has happened, right? I have no idea the details of those particular cases. But the fact is, if you're part of a collective movement, but you're seen to have your own individual brands, you're seen to be part of your – part of the success, quote-unquote, is seen through – the individual. It also makes it easy to be picked off one by one because yeah. we're not part then of a fabric. We're all weaving together, and it's actually not about you, the individual. Yeah. It's it's about the collective. Yes. I hope that answers the question. It does. In some I way. mean,
0: what it does is it, it 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 helps us to think about so neoliberalism neo- and its convergence with identity politics. And, and I think it's a particularly important thing for us to think about. So neoliberalism is this notion that the, um, the efficiencies, um, capitalism wants us to be as efficient as possible, right? So that's why we cost right. cut. That's why we um, make the universities smaller or that's why we cut out the humanities because actually STEM is the thing that's going to extract the most and make the most. Out. So neoliberalism, you can use it in any context, but you're, what you're describing is these, mm this maximizing systems, minimizing the humanity of people, right? So this is the, yeah, the kind of like, this is like the 101, this is like the easiest way that I can find to define it. And I'm sure like someone else will be like, well, she didn't get that right. But that's right. Yeah. So that's the like, <laughs> most basic definition, right? And then if you think about how yeah, that, and then, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I think
1: there's also another quote that I really like, which is about it, it changes your thinking of yourself as a bit of capital to be optimized. You know, you think you, you think of yourself as an asset. So you think, you know, am I using my time productively? And what does productive actually mean? You know, exactly what you're saying. It's that efficiency mindset or like productivity mindset, but to yourself as an individual. And I write about this again in the, in my defense of hobbies, because I'm like, for me, resisting the idea that all of my time needs to be, Productive in some way needs to be monetizable in some way. That's a—it's a weirdly hard thing to do sometimes. That's but right. I'm trying to make space for you know activities and time in my life that is in no way efficient or productive or monetizable or commercializable, or is even—it doesn't even look nice. It's not even for Instagram. That's right. um, that in itself is a small, tiny act of resistance.
0: And I know, and I know, like you say it in just, but I think it's a really important pushback and resistance. So if there is a thing that is revolutionary ab- about that idea, it's, that it's like it's not even for Instagram. Because this thing, this phone is like, it is a way to hyper individualize and atomize our society, right? That's what that thing does. And that's part of the danger of it, which is why then when it, when, when it interacts with identity politics, and you begin to think that like having a black billionaire means anything for black people. It means nothing. Having a black billionaire might mean something for white people who, didn't, who don't believe that black people are capable of being billionaires, but that's got li- very limited value. <laughs> like that finishes very quickly, right? So, so I thought it, that your engagement with some of these really complicated concepts is super important because it is, it is, it is often the case that we are having these conversations about big concepts and ideas, and we're not connecting it with the conversation about identity politics, about race, about social justice, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I appreciated that about what part of the project of what this book is. Um, okay, so th- the other one, the other, the other concept that I thought was really interesting, particularly, you talk about it in a um, British context, but I think that, that there's some interesting applicability here in Australia is the notion of brownwashing. So can you talk to us about what brownwashing is and how it, how it plays out in, the Boris, in Boris Johnson's um, cabinet? Um, and I was like, they're not even trying to play it out in Australian cabinet. <laughs> oh God, that is,
1: that is something, isn't it? <laughs> so the idea of brownwashing, I'll, I'll take a step back briefly yep. just to give some context. So when Boris Johnson... Um, had this landslide victory in, you know, and hopefully you don't see the same thing tonight, but this landslide victory in 2019. You know, he put together this cabinet that they advertise as like the most diverse cabinet, the most ethnically diverse cabinet, you know, forever. And he had, I think, a number of uh, maybe four um, for sort of South Asian folks um, in the on the front bench and so on, and everyone was like, this is amazing, this is racial progress. And what essentially I try to do is I peel back that myth, this I, this sort of myth of representation, the myth that you know, as a as lots of Black people quite often say, is like not all skin folk are kin folk, right? And what does that mean? It's the, essentially the idea um, connected to British imperial history is that by putting you know brown faces in positions of leadership. Um, they themselves do the work of the colonial masters, right, and and that means in the British context, for example, you get people who are from, you know, historically marginalized communities to effectively enact the most discriminatory, racial discriminatory policies, like, against their own own communities that they're a part of, and part of it is that in order for you as a person from a historically marginalized background to prove your allegiance to this new elite group, to gain access, you have to do that. You have to turn against, you know, your own community. And for, you know, the elites in question, it's very helpful for them to be able to, you know, if our politics is just, you know we just need representation in a very sort of visual sense and nothing else it becomes very easy for them to say well how can you say you know we're racially discriminating when we've got a you know a south asian person in this particular role doing this thing Pretty patel is the um home uh, the home office minister here in the uk some of she has essentially she's criminalizing protests in all sorts of ways it essentially has passed a, um a bill that it makes it incredibly easy for the government to strip people of their citizenship without even informing them, you know, it's really um, the number of deportations and raids and all these sorts of things have increased dramatically. And, but, but, you know, she can stand up and say, mm. well, how could I possibly be racist when people were racist to me when I was a kid growing up? Mm. And this, is such, you know, it is a trick of empire and it is also what I term as brownwashing. You essentially put brown people in these roles that, um, that you know, white people traditionally were in but and you make it, just like greenwashing, just like pinkwashing, you make it seem like you're progressing. But in fact, you're hiding the fact that you are actually regressing, you are actually being more discriminatory, your policies are actually more dangerous. But if our politics doesn't look past that visual representation, we might think, oh, it's fine. They've got a very diverse cabinet, it's fine. It's actually not fine. You have to look beyond just that visual representation. I mean, you know, where I come from, in Sudan, for example, um, and in lots of East Africa, the majority of the Um, South Asians in the the Boris Johnson cabinet come from a particular part, a particular history where um, in East Africa, a number of, you know, a large group of Indians were brought over by the British to be the sort of like sub-colonial or sub-imperial masters, right? They did the work on behalf of, you know, the white British. And effectively that is being done again, you know, The the communities that did that in East Africa are now doing the same sort of thing here, you know, on on the mainland, in the metropole. Mm, mm, Um, mm. And I think it's really important that we pay attention to this. I think it's really important that we don't just depend on visual representation. Um, We don't just think just because somebody might be from, you know, might look like they would have a certain politics, it does not guarantee your race, your racial background, it does not guarantee you any politic, right? Like, right. it is important that we look beyond that in order for us not to be swindled effectively That's by right. brownwashing and um, and by this this sort of imperial trick.
0: Which doesn't change the necessity of representation either, right? So it's not it's not one or the, not one or the other. Um, I wanted. To... Oh, they're not mutually exclusive yeah. at all. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted you to um, turn to page one hundred and five in your book. Um, and I, I, I was struck by from that from the essay. Life was easier before I was woke. I was struck by because I think this is the one that that you published. Oh no, it wasn't. There was another essay that you published in the Griffith Review in 2013 that talked about being on the rigs, and I was struck by how long ago that was. And it was about racism and sexism uh, in your, you know, early part of your career. And I thought, wow, we're still, you know, of course we've been having this conversation for a really long time. But I thought about the kind of courage that it took to have that conversation given who you were in that moment a long, long time ago. Um, but that's an aside. I wanted you to read from page, the bottom of page 105. It was becoming obvious. Um, yep. And if you will take that to um, the end of the third paragraph on the next page, coping mechanisms, etc. Just that, that piece, because I think there's a lot to think about there. All right.
1: It was becoming obvious that there was a chasm between my understanding of my place in the world and the reality of it. Here, on the rigs in the middle of the desert and ocean, my process of awakening would begin. This change changed time. Amers, a prominent Australian feminist, once said that young women don't think they need feminism until they have a child. The implication was that having a child is a life stage when the difference between women and their colleagues becomes irrefutable. The conversation occurred a number of years ago, before feminism enjoyed the resurgence in the popular consciousness that it's going through today. Her statement bore some truth, but in my case, it wasn't having a child that spurred my belief in the cause. Rather, it was my entrance into a space where my gender was inescapably obvious and so unarguably different from the accepted norm that something was going to have to change. To nobody's surprise except my own, the environment I moved into didn't change. I did. I fell into the pattern of so many female engineers before me who did what they could to survive. Research by Dean and M. Hatmaker at the University of Connecticut, published in 2013, shows that women in engineering tend to fall within two main categories when dealing with the male dominance of the workplace: coping mechanisms and/or impression management.
0: Sorry, Yasmin, keep going, because I sorry, because the part I want you to read out is still coming.
1: Yeah, no problem. Internal coping mechanisms include blocking and rationalising. Blocking involves using verbal blocks of any kind to stop any mention of gender or gender identity. This serves the purpose of bringing one's professional identity to the foreground and attempts to prevent any gendered biases, expectations or stereotypes affecting an interaction. Rationalising is a more cognitive process whereby female engineers convince themselves that they're okay with unfair or discriminatory behaviour. Importantly, these techniques help with coping. They help the engineer, me, feel better about the situation, but rarely change long-term behaviour in any substantive manner. He's an old man, of course he would say that about women, I'd say to myself. Oh, they didn't mean it like that. They're teasing me because I'm now part of the group. I'm not like other girls. I can hack it. It's no big deal. Perfect. Yeah.
0: Great. I fell
1: into the rationalising category. Ooh, okay, now sorry. you can stop. <laughs>
0: <There's> a... <laughs> we could listen to your voice all all night. But...
1: Book, folks, it's fine. by the audiobook.
0: <laughs> so I thought that was a really important piece passage to read out because... I think it defines so so many of us and how we respond to being in an environment where we're on the outside. And I think outside can be defined in many, many ways, right? But I thought it was a really interesting analysis. And it's part of the problem of being the first. Uh, And part of your life, Yasmin, a a big part of your story is in any given context always being the first. Can you... I think we're accustomed to hearing about the um, downsides of being the first, Um, but part of why your book feels in some ways so light and full of grace and and energy is because you also explore the excitement and some of the good things about being the first. And so I'm curious about what you want to say to me about what it means to be the first that isn't only a challenge.
1: Mm, what a wonderful question. I find it so fun. Right. Because the thing is about being and what I will say is that, like, I think I have often leaned into the idea of being the first. But what I will say is perhaps I've not always actually been the first, but the people before me who maybe were similar to me maybe never had the opportunity to tell their stories. And so perhaps I'm the first who also gets the platform to share um, and my name to be known. And that is, you know, quite a privilege that I'm I'm recognising more and more. But there's something so delightful about going into a world where nobody has any, there's no template for how you should operate. You know, people like, say, for example, when I worked in the rigs, like people literally had no idea what a, what a Sudanese Muslim woman was meant to operate like on a rig. They just, they didn't even know it's different. where Sudan was, right? So like, it's not as if they, they had a template. Like, I think also because I came from like a, you know, my family, my culture, my community, as much as, you know, I loved so much, but there's a very specific idea of what a woman should and shouldn't do, what, you know, Someone, you know, like me in my position, the eldest daughter, the whatever, all of these protocols and rules and traditions and so on. And then I would just like go into these worlds where people were like, um, what are you doing here? and and that uh, that actually gave me a sense of freedom and also i think i'm just a really insatiably curious person i'm so curious about how people in other worlds do things and you know that's part of why i love taking up ridiculous hobbies like i i'm like quite attracted to to what i call like um, not attracted to, I really, I find it really fun to experiment with like rich white people hobbies, because I'm like, what do the rich white people get up to? So let me, <laughs> let me try skiing, you know, or like, let me try horse riding or whatever. And like, act, you know, and like, see what it's like in these worlds, because sure, they might like the number of times so when I, I first learned to ski when I moved to the UK, and I was like, well, I'm in a cold place, I might as well learn how to do something with the cold. And I, I like Googled um, you know, where to learn to how do. to ski. And I found this, <laughs> <place>. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I found this place in Switzerland, not quite realizing that it was literally the most expensive place I could have gone. Um, bye bye, like months of savings. But the funniest thing, this, this Swiss family that I met, they were like, oh, you know, when we see a black person on the mountain, it's like a sign of good luck. <laughs> oh my I'm not, god. I'm like not a leprechaun. <laughs> um but sure, like this is great. Um but for me, I was just like, you know, Far this out. is hilarious for me, and this is gonna be a great story. I wonder um, if
0: it's a black person on the mountain is. or just any black person in the town. Like, is the luck what, you know, <laughs> what is the good luck? Is it seeing a black person? <laughs>
1: You know, I didn't really dig into it. Next time I I see a Swiss person, I'll be like, so what is it about black people that gives you good luck, you know?
0: Wow, that is so hectic. (laughs) Um. Yeah, look, I just,
1: yeah, it's fun in lots of, you kind of, you have to have a sense of humour about you, I think.
0: But I also think that, but I asked the question on purpose because, of course, I'm interested in the... um, and, and this came up in the session I was in just before this as well, this idea that the only um, thing to do in conversations about race and racism is to talk about loss. Um, and mm-hmm. that we have to be able to talk about um, how, uh, how we win. We have to be able to talk about what the opportunities are in expanding and extending justice. Uh, because if we don't, then um, de- addressing racism is a bitter pill rather than an incredible opportunity, you know? So that's why I asked the question. Um, Okay, okay. So one of the things that I loved about, uh, one of the essays I loved was the one about cars and how much you love cars. And I'd love you to talk a little bit about driving and cars and and that. And there is an excerpt. You know me, class. Um, (laughs) And it starts on page, at the bottom of page 52. And if you'll go to the end of um, the has, because the world around you has. So it's a short, sweet one. Okay, do you want me to start on, on the 4th of September? Exactly, yep.
1: All right. On the 4th of September 2021, Australia's weekly progressive paper published a title, published a piece titled, Why Your Current Car May Be the Last Fossil Fuel Vehicle You Own. The era of the electric car is all here, author Mike Seckham wrote. I know he's speaking true. And I know the shift away from fossil fuels is vital, necessary, humanity saving. There is no part of me that denies this reality. There is no part of me that fights it. I understand it rationally with every one of my little gray cells. But there is no part of me that isn't heartbroken. My love is old fashioned. My love is seen as dirty, filthy, unimportant, unworthy. My love is ultimately replaceable. What do you do with a love that is no longer viable? Not because either of you has changed, but because the world around you has.
0: Oh, what a beautiful elegy to cars, right? <laughs> I thought it was very my, beautiful. Um, I, I <laughs> Go ahead.
1: I'm sorry. I, I, um, I shared this piece with my husband, and he was like, why, why is your relationship with cars so erotic? I'm jealous. <laughs> and I was like, I'm really
0: sorry. I loved it, and I loved it in part because... One of the things that hopefully moving forward after this weekend, um, we will be able to do is have more honest conversations about what it means to come to terms with the, the existential climate crisis that is facing us. And part of that is to be able to mourn loss because if you don't talk in concrete terms about what will be different in the future, how can you possibly be able to move towards making that future? So it was just, like, really fantastic to be able to say, actually, the world will be different. And I just love that it's kind of gentle and lighthearted, but it's also, like, there are real things that are going to shift about the world. And I I just wanted to say I really appreciated that, particularly in an Australia that doesn't want to have that kind of concrete conversation. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it
1: it was one of the essays, actually, that I wrote... Pretty much all in one go in a real sort of like emotional outpouring, um, and I think it was actually the last one that I wrote, perhaps because it was you know I know I knew that I had something to say, but I didn't really know you know how to how to express it, and I think it is you know perhaps one of the more sort of like lyrical of the pieces yes. because it is something that I think comes from a place much more of like you know emotional connections than of rational thinking and and you're right i think we have to like i have to be able to talk about the fact that i accept that pe- the pe- the era of the petrol car is over and that for me is sad and i think and but that's also okay it's yeah. okay for it to be sad because it doesn't mean that you know, just because something is sad, it doesn't mean I want it to stop, and I, you know, and I want to like hold on to yeah. a to a previous era that is you know destructive for us all. But as you say, there has to be space to be like, I just don't like electric cars. I think they're boring. <laughs> I think they're quiet, and like all they do is accelerate quickly. But la di da, you know, it's like for an, for a mechanical engineer, there's nothing for me to do with an electric car. You know, it's a bunch of batteries. Now this Take is that, not Elon. a popular position. <laughs> I get it, right? Like one of my um one of the people I was working with here in the UK was like, please keep those opinions to yourself. Um, you know, <laughs> where else are you gonna move? Uh so
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah Um I, I'm gonna <laughs> Anyway,
1: r- r- yeah, enjoy that essay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna ask one more question and then I'm gonna open up for questions in case there are audience questions. Um, so, speaking of big loves, one of the clearly palpable and gorgeous big loves in, your, in this collection of essays is your parents. You reference them often and with great affection, and I would love for you to talk to us a little bit about your parents and what they, what they have gifted to you.
1: Oh, bless. Um, you know, it's funny. I don't think my parents will ever read this collection. They don't, they're not huge um, readers of my work. Although my dad did read my first and sent me a a series of notes um, (laughs) after it was published. And I was like, dad, I can't make these corrections. Like the book's already out, Uh, but I appreciate it nonetheless. (laughs) It's already in bookstores. (laughs) Um, It's already in bookstores, dad. But I, I would not be in so many ways. I just, I share that because I think it's, I think they, you know, it's a very perhaps African thing to talk about your parents or to talk about the people you love to other people and maybe not always tell them yourself how much you love them and respect them. So like, you know, my love letter to them is the books that I write, but they're, they're not necessarily always reading them. So I'm glad that I can get the chance to talk about That's it. Um, I am so grateful in so many ways to my parents. Um, I think that the older I get, the more I realize the more I comprehend the sacrifices that they made, you know, picking up. I am now somebody that picked up in their mid-20s and started a life somewhere else, and that's what they did, but they also did it with children, and they did it in a time when you couldn't connect to to people back home, Um, and they did it in a society that wasn't very similar to the society that they left, and, you know, and they didn't complain. They, you know they did the very best that they could to not only just survive, but to set my brother and I up with a moral framework, with critical thinking skills, with a curiosity about the world, with, you know, and of course, there are things that I will talk, you know, I will share stories.
0: Oh. Oh. Wow.
1: Literally everyone, everyone will cuss me out. It's fine. You don't. You don't actually. You don't actually need to do it as well. Um, but I. I think that um, I got so lucky. You know, I got so lucky with my parents. Alhamdulillah, because um, they never wanted me to be somebody who I wasn't, and they never saw me. They as like they are an extension of themselves they understood that i was my own person um and that their their role as parents was to gift me the skill sets and um and an understanding of the world but then you know then my life is my own Mm.
0: and isn't that just the most spectacular gift i would love to come and get some parenting lessons from your parents so (laughs) to have, I cannot imagine either of my children saying this about me when they grow up. <laughs> give it time, give it time. The way looking right now. Um, do, we, do we have anyone who wants to ask questions? Because that leads me to another question, which is about Islam, which is another big love of your life, and such a powerful and important part of how you see the world and think about the world. So I'll ask that while people are making their way, if there's anyone. Um, the microphones are at the front of the... So, can you respond to the Islam question while our first speaker? Yeah, sure. Anything specific or just generally? Just I wanted, uh, in the same way that um, that um, mm. you unpack, you know, you know, very large concepts. One of the things that I'm curious about is how faith and Islam, in particular, imbues your politics, your way of seeing the world. Um, yeah.
1: Thank you for that question because I think. Um, I think people quite often want resist the idea of engaging with my, you know, my faith and my relationship with my faith for a variety of different reasons. But I think you cannot understand me without understanding my relationship to Islam. Um, you know, one of the essays, Islam and Social Justice, is all about how my my understanding, my you know, whether my belief in justice, my calling to it, isn't just a thing that I believe in, but it is inherently linked. To the way that I understand my faith, and my faith is my way of life. And so, for me, justice—it has to be my way of life. It is—it it is a um, a calling. It is my reason for being. And I think you know, a concept like Islam, you know, a religion living uh, within a faith structure that is not the majority. Like it would be different, perhaps, if I was living in a Muslim majority context. But being a minoritized. Um, being part of a minoritized community and being part of a faith that I think, you know, in the the words of Jane Caro, has a PR problem. Um, True. Uh, I think that for me, part of my sort of raison d'être is also to try to show the world through my own example and my writings what I love so much about this faith, what it gives to me. Like, for example, um, you know, the way that marriage works in Islam is you write up a contract with each other. and nikah ahagid, you write up a relationship contract. It is like a business partnership. And, you know, that's what I did. My partner and I, you know, we spent months writing up a relationship, our marriage contract, and that's what you sign. It is not till death do you part. It's, you know, until all your roles and responsibilities are upheld. Um, And and that's like a really revolutionary thing, I think. You know, that's where I think about, you know, gender justice and so on. Mm -hmm. That, for me, is part of it. Things like this that are not only just about um, how I feel and and my belief in something bigger, but it's also in the day-to-day, in the practical, Mm -hmm. in the fact that, you know, I look at every aspect of my life and think how would, you know, how do I best do this through the Islamic lens, through a just lens? Um, I'm coming for that contract that that too. Me well,
0: inshallah. I'm coming. I'm coming for that contract too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. Yes, sir.
1: Uh, Yasmin, will you be coming back to Australia and do you feel welcome, uh, a sense of uh, being able to, you know, being welcomed if you did return I mean, apart from us who, you know, (laughs) welcome you, but just overall, how do you feel uh, after leaving Australia under those circumstances that you did those years ago? Thank you. Thank you so much, all of you who have turned up. I appreciate it. On an election eve, and I hear that it's raining as well. Um, One of the the essays starts with um, my fantasy of giving up my Australian citizenship. Uh, So... I think that my relationship with Australia has um, changed to a point where, unless something irrevocably changes, I don't think I will be making it my home again anytime soon.
0: That's so heartbreaking. Thanks, Yasmin, And I I want us to think about that. I think that's a really important thing. Thank you for the question. Yes. Um, Thank you. I wanted to ask, I think in Australia, in
1: terms of gender equality, we are getting there. Um, but I think when it comes to ethnic diversity, we still have a long way to go. Um, and you've talked about, I think, brownwashing, um, and, you know, there are some companies where there is the token ethnic, I guess, is the best way that I could explain that. Um, I guess the question that I wanted to ask is like, how can we do better? I know that that's, you could probably talk another hour about it, but just, I guess, in, in summary, It's a great question, and I think in Australia, in particular, it, the conversation around racial, you know, justice cannot be had, you know, honestly without thinking about the history, without thinking about the relationship to First Nations people, and without sort of interrogating and taking accountability for, as a state, the original sin of, you know, of Australia. And so I think that you know. Progress has to—it has to start by being honest about what Australia is. About being honest about the fact that every part of Australia is built on white supremacy. Um, every aspect of the institutions is predicated. No, you know, it is different to other um, places in the world because it is predicated on this concept of whiteness and white supremacy. So unless we start from that com- that point, we are only ever going to be, you know. Using band aids and so on, I think. So I would say that in order for Australia to really grapple with this question of you know racial diversity, you know, it has to start from well, we're a settler colony, and you know we have a population who hasn't ceded sovereignty. How do we how do we grapple with that? Take accountability for that. Like, it doesn't look like reparations. Does it? What is the genuine? I mean. Indigenous people have gotten together and said, "Here is a th- you know a three step process. give us a voice in parliament, do this, this, and this, and that hasn't even been met with you know any sort of respect or or, or a yes, which would have been nice. so I think that um, you cannot you cannot progress on the question of racial justice in Australia without looking at that original sin. Wow. Um, and then from there, you can start to have a conversation about what it means to be Australian in, you know, in this century um, and what version of it is everyone you know, able to be part of.
0: Mm. It's, thanks. That's a great response.
1: Um. I think just following on from that, um, part of the way I, I understand my Australianness is after I went away for many, many years, because I think I had the same kind of rupture with Australia, that um, not so much as you did, but certainly my heart kind of was broken by it. So thinking about what you said earlier about grace and about um, finding the high compassion, if you were to describe Australia to people in the UK, stripping away all of the negativity, how would you describe it?
0: Hmm, that's that's stripping away all the negativity is doing a lot of heavy lifting in that sentence.
1: (laughs) To be honest, I don't don't have a relationship with Australia that isn't shaped by my experiences, unfortunately. Um, I have once compared it to an abusive partner, and I think that still stands. I think, for me, you know, with an abusive partner, maybe there were times that were great, um, but ultimately uh you cannot separate the abuse from you know the times that were good and that is still where I. maybe in 15 years it'll be different but it's only been you know just under five years for me since I've left um and I have some grace but I'm only human
0: Are there other questions from the audience? Anyone else want to ask Yasmina a question? OK, back to me. Um, <laughs> I have more excerpts that I can ask her to read. <laughs> um, you know, I think this last part of the conversation is um, in some ways Im- important and instructive. Part of what I didn't want to do was to put your departure as the front loading of this conversation. Um, because then we are forever defined by your leaving, and you are forever defined by um, this thing that all of us have done, the Facebook rants, all of that stuff, which was so mild. We were discussing you at brunch today, actually, um, about this notion of, of, of the chilling effect of what happened to you, um, what was done to you, the harm. And... So I didn't want that to be the beginning of the conversation because then everything is colored by it. Uh, And yet, of course, it's a reality. And I think sitting with the um, discomfort and your refusal to make it feel better by saying, yeah, I'll come back, is actually a very important um, thing. Have you felt pressure to answer in in, in a different way? Have you felt pressure to say, yeah, actually, I could come back, maybe. To, f- to perform a uh, measure of quote-unquote forgiveness?
1: Almost everyone I speak to who's Australian starts with that question. When are you coming back? There is an assumption baked into that question that I want to come back, that I'm interested in returning to the scene of the crime, that I have some... that you know, that Australia has some sort of entitlement over me or I have some sort of duty to it, responsibility, you know. I i mean, it's partly why I avoid friendships with Australians when I, you know, after I left, because that inevitably people, again, this is, you know, I have an essay called Whose Borders Are They Anyway? And I talk about this, how even when I meet Australians in the street, in London, in Croatia, in the United States, in Paris, That is the question people ask, when are you going back? And my answer is, why would I go back? Why would I go back? I don't owe anything to Australia. I wasn't born there. I spent a good 20-something years there. So what? So what? Mm -hmm. What makes me Australian? And if it's this citizenship, then maybe that needs to be rethought because I don't feel... Like, I owe Australia anything. The social contract between me and the country was broken. And not everything broken needs to be healed. Hmm. I left. I animated. I started a new life somewhere else in the same way my parents left Sudan and started a new life somewhere else. That is my choice. And I very highly, I I think it's very unlikely that I will reconsider that. And, you know, I will never say never because who knows what the future holds. But I think it is important that people understand that nothing has changed. So why would I return? No accountability has been taken. So why should I be the one? Why should I be the one that slinks back? Mm. No. They do not get that. The state does not get that. The colony does not get that. I deserve better, and I have chosen better for myself.
0: Wow. Far out. That's an amazing answer. Um, And we are 11 minutes short of finishing up, so not only did we have a sparkling conversation, but we finished it exactly on time. I cannot say thank you to you enough, Yasmin, for being such a fascinating and curious and lovely interlocutor. And I want to say by way of closing that you have modeled for us, all of us in this room, what it means to be both happy and profoundly uncompromising. Thank you. Thank
1: you all. Thank you all so, so much.
0: Thanks, everyone. Buy the book. You've been listening to a Sydney Writers' Festival podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And go to swf.org.au for more great content.